we would just like to take a moment to warn listeners that this episode will contain content that may be confronting to hear. This episode will contain mentions of suicide and suicidal ideation. Listener discretion is advised. Hi listeners, I'm Izzy, my pronouns are they and them. Welcome to the Critical Conversations for Social Work podcast. This is Joella. Before we start, we'd like to acknowledge the country that we're recording this episode on today and pay our respects to the Turrbal and Yagara peoples and their elders, past, present and emerging by committing to always remembering that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hello listeners, I'm Juliet and welcome to Critical Conversations for Social Work. I am a social work graduate of QUT and my pronouns are she and her. I would first like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today to record this podcast, the Yagara and the Turrbal people, and pay respects to the elders past and present and emerging leaders. With me today is Natalie. Would you be like to share a bit about yourself and the area you work with, Natalie? Hey Juliet, it's um, fantastic to be here. I'll begin by sharing a little bit about myself. So I had a long history working as a special education teacher and that was working across a whole wide range of school settings supporting children with disabilities. And that career, I guess, really opened my eyes to the notion of ableism and then concepts around inclusion and equity and equality. And it also gave me a real interest in what the community can provide our families. Following that career, I enrolled into a master's qualifying of social work at the University of the Sunshine Coast, and I completed that degree in 2016. Uh, During my time as a student there, I developed a passion in exploring art and activism and was a part of just some really memorable experiences like being in a flash mob dance (laughs) to raise awareness of domestic family violence. I used to bake cupcakes. I called them my social justice cupcakes (laughs) and would print out little um, social justice, I guess, phrases and inspiring quotes and bring them to a setting as a form of raising consciousness in that setting. It's so fun. (laughs) It is fun. And then I was part of an initiative where I found a a bunch of ladies in a refugee support group who were willing to knit some teddies. And we sold the teddies to raise money for go-cards for refugees who had to pay full costs for a go-card. So those kind of interests, oh, just made my social work learning fun and vibrant and exciting. My passion for asylum seekers and, and refugees continued and I did an absolutely awe-inspiring placement at the Multicultural Development Association, which is the largest settlement agency in southeast Queensland for refugees and asylum seekers. 
And then I had some amazing experiences visiting asylum seekers in our own Brisbane Immigration Centre, which is very hidden near the airport. I guess being exposed to that kind of work was very arduous, very oppressive, and it was very hard to remain, uh, I guess, motivated to agitate the system because the changes were so incredibly minimal and the suffering and oppression of asylum seekers was very hard to watch over a long period of time. My second placement took me into a research project at the university exploring the experiences of international students. And so there was a lot of rich learning around notions of social justice and access to education. And then that led to my first job working at the uni, running a peer group for international students. Soon after that, I struggled finding employment, and that probably eroded my confidence as a new graduate. But I I found different casual jobs. I worked as a support worker in a community mental health organisation, learnt a lot from that. And then I took on some casual work running art therapy program in a private mental health hospital. As the work continued to just be casual, I end up cold calling 10 hospitals. <laughs> well, that's brave. <laughs> Very brave. And really had to put myself out there. I mm. just wrote to team leaders and searched for um, different hospitals and that's how I got my foot in the door. Oh. Yeah, and so now I practice as a social worker in a mental health team for older persons in a hospital setting. So I can imagine with the hospital, there's a lot of systems and structures to navigate around. Um, You sound like you want to bring your your creative side into it. So how do you navigate that? I might begin by, well, first of all, I'll explain the kind of work that I do. So the role is like a case manager. So we've got occupational therapists, nurses, psychologists, and social workers, and we have a caseload and we support people over the age of 65 who have generally a severe mental illness and then they may also have other significant medical conditions like impaired mobility or diabetes. They may um, have periods of distress around feeling suicidal or experiencing some significant stress in life, grief and loss. We work with patients who may have substance dependency and also patients with dementia. So it's complex and challenging kind of work. The systems and the structures that you mentioned, that's important to highlight that in this work. I've kind of just thought about three systems that I guess I I have to navigate on a daily basis. So the first one is that neoliberal ideology And I remember when I was at university and Jean wrote on the board this huge long word, neoliberal. (laughs) It's taken me years and years to understand it. And And I may not be able to really articulate it well today, but in summary, what I noticed in the health service that economic priorities and managerial interventions focus on reducing costs. Mm. So it's about the budget. Sometimes it feels more about Mm. the budget, yeah, more so than than patient care. And I guess you can see in many examples that health is delivered similar to a business model. And the challenge with neoliberalism is that it locates the causes of mental illness within the individual 
and not only the causes but then the solutions. So the responsibility for health then becomes very much located in the individual. Mm. Some other examples, I guess, of neoliberalism that I see, when you're a social worker working in a ward, you do discharge planning. So you're always looking at how we can get this patient out of this ward and back integrated into home. And there's always a huge pressure on social workers to discharge patients to free up Mm. beds. And then that not only places stress on you working with that patient, that you can't take your time for that quality of care, Mm. but the stress goes on the family that you're discharging that patient home to if they're lucky enough to have a family. And of course, under neoliberalism, it's cheaper for a family to care for an elderly person than for the hospital or an aged care facility to be doing so. Neoliberalism shows itself in, you know, the privatisation of health. So really, people are very disadvantaged if they're wanting to seek psychology. Mm. It's near impossible to find bulk billing psychology. And then we've got these limitations that you can get a mental health care plan, but maybe you can only have six sessions in that year because, you know, in six sessions, you should be better. (laughs) (laughs) There's a focus on self-management. How, you know, are you eating sensibly? Are you sleeping well? What are you doing to exercise and reduce your stress? With, again, failing to see the structural forces that are oppressing that person and impacting on their mental health. There's notions of efficiency. So I'll give you an example. I see this in residential aged care facilities, like in a dementia ward or sometimes on the mental health ward. If you have a patient who's really distressed, it takes a lot of time Mm. to work through that person's distress. And in these neoliberal environments, we don't have that time. Mm. And so it may be more efficient for the workplace to offer a Valium to help and someone medicate come. the problem away. Medicate yeah. the problem away. Another example of neoliberalism is that the hospital will charge patients fees if they stay for a lengthy admission. Oh, I didn't know they did that. No, not many people know about that. And it's, I guess what it does is that it perpetuates someone's disadvantage. So for example, a patient might be in hospital and they can't return to their home and they're waiting for an NDIS package or a home care package so that they can return home. And in that wait, if that wait becomes drawn out, then there will be a period of time where patients are required to pay hospital fees. And probably the final thing I'd say about the neoliberalism is a huge focus on administration and the bureaucracy takes our time away from patients. The second theory or structure that's very prevalent in mental health is a psychodynamic theory. And that's primarily talking about how childhood has shaped our personality and our emotions and our behaviours. So there's a heavy reliance upon diagnosing patients, Mm. which we know can lead to pathologising people and stigmatising people. And it suggests, again, that people are responsible, have some sort of individual responsibility for becoming unwell. A little example, if we think of someone who may have like a drug-induced psychosis, 
it would be very easy from a psychogenemic theory to individualise that person's drug dependency and to to ask that person to be responsible for getting better by engaging with like a drug counsellor. But it ignores all of the structural oppression, which mm. may have led that person to using drugs in the first place. The theory is very individualistic. It's about wanting to change you instead of changing the world around us. It avoids blaming the capitalist forces which have exacerbated our poor health. It fails to recognise the structures of oppression like housing, education, healthcare, racism. And I guess in the hospital it's very common to be talking about CBT so cognitive behaviour therapy as a practice with a patient, um, which locates, again, the problems in people's thoughts and their behaviours. And this type of therapy is often promoted as evidence-based, but we've got to ask ourselves who developed the Mm. evidence. Was this a Western scientific research? And I guess it fails to question alternate ways of understanding or Indigenous perspectives. The third structure is the medical model, and that's the conventional approach to medicine in Western society, which again focuses on disease and diagnosis. Mm. And the solution is about symptom management and excludes other narratives about health. I see a lot like aged care facilities are very much based on this biomedical model of care, and that's where the focus is on the illness and the disease. And then our older people are positioned as very passive. Right, they just receive what someone tells them they need. Absolutely. Mm. And so then it becomes a culture of doing for rather than doing with. Yeah. And missing their voice. And it ties into the ageism concept, I guess, of how we treat adults. And their lives can be consumed by health problems. And Mm. I guess that can dominate our conversations. So that's... The structures. Mm, Yes. So in terms of navigating them, I guess I do this by adopting a critical lens and I prioritise social justice. And Juliet, I'm constantly engaging in reflective practice. It sounds like it's great. (laughs) Sometimes it drives me nuts. So powerful. So it's all about putting the patient first above all dominating narratives, and there's lots of them in healthcare. I guess as critical social workers, we know that health problems have social origins and our social work interventions should be targeted towards those social contexts. So that's where I focus my attention. And the way I survive the system is by infusing critical social work into my practice because the system really is a very dominating, powerful system. Yes. So although I'd like to purely practice as a critical social worker, it's really difficult to do so. Yeah. But I can infuse critical practice. So I've got some examples if you... Actually, before we jump Mm. to that, you mentioned before the bureaucracy keeps you away from your patients. Can you expand a little bit what you experience within that? Yep. So I guess... Believe it or not, in healthcare, we they have KPIs. No. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I heard about that when I was working retail. I heard about that. In, oh, no. Yeah, so yeah. key performance indicators, uh, which I guess just demonstrates kind of that um, business and, you know, the budget as mm. well. And so there's a lot of documentation and administrative tasks that we have to do, and a lot of those 
um, a lot of those tasks might be like inventories that we're assessing someone's improvement and well-being and their ability to function, but they're compulsory documentation and they're meant to be measuring also mental health outcomes, which can be questionable. And that's probably the most dissatisfying part of my job is being tied to the computer when I want to be tied. It takes a while to fill them out as well. Yeah, and just the note-taking obviously is essential, writing clinical notes, but the amount of paperwork, Mm. I was never prepared for that when I left uni (laughs) and entered this space that such a huge amount of my time would be chained to the computer instead of with patients. Do you want to loop back to your examples? Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Okay, examples of navigating the systems. So I'm constantly reflecting upon my sense of self in the practice and I guess being aware of assumptions I have, Mm. being aware of my privilege is a constant reflection when I'm working with patients who are vulnerable or frail or elderly Mm. and who are disadvantaged. To recognise and call out ageist attitude. I found it quite amusing. A lot of colleagues of mine who may work in other areas, when they find out I'm working with older people, they're like, oh, they're so sweet. (laughs) (laughs) The little old granny narratives that we all have. Yeah, Yeah. that must be easy because, you know, they're nice and they're frail (laughs) and they're dependent. But it's just naming that attitudes behind those comments. So I know my father, I won't mention his age for his sake, but he's in now technically the age thing. And he got a delivery when we lived down the road from an avio retirement village. And they went, oh, now you're over 50. He went, no. And he's very much of that. It's a mental state, which I believe it is because he keeps going. But if someone tells him to stop, I think he would stop, even if he's still capable. Yes. Yeah, I see even that ageism like within my parents. Yes. They're like, oh, should we still be working full-time jobs? Like he got a new job this year. Yes. And everyone was telling him, oh, just retire early. Yes. So it's all those generalised assumptions that are easily made. I guess I'm always looking at giving patients a sense of hope, but more than hope, I guess one of the biggest critical approaches with frail and vulnerable patients is giving them a sense of agency. Again, that come doing with instead of doing for. Mm. Yeah, what is it that you're wanting? What is it in your future that you're wanting? Your dad was able to express and communicate what he wants and he has agency, but if you've got disadvantage in your life, it's very hard to execute that agency. Another big critical practice of mine is consciousness raising. And I was funny, I was thinking about this concept of neoliberalism and the bureaucracy and the pressure that social workers are working under. And I I was nearly going to say it's really important that we practice, you know, self-care in those incidents, Mm. which it is. But then I thought, no, more importantly, it's more important that we consciousness raise yeah, and we agitate the system and we speak up and against these oppressive measures in the workplace. Other ways of practising critically is privileging a patient's own lived experience with mental illness, Mm. more so than what the Diagnostic Statistic Manual of Mental Illnesses has to say. Yeah. I'm far more interested in a person's own lived experience. It's also important to keep an, an open mind to alternate narratives. 
second opinions, different experiences. When you're working with a dominant narrative of biomedical and psychodynamic, I worked with a patient who spoke about some experiences which could perhaps be interpreted as out-of-the-norm way of thinking. So this patient spoke about telepathic communication. Okay. Oh, okay, yeah. But as I got to know the patient and understood more of her context, her social context, Mm -hmm. I learned about this culture that she had. From her culture, as well as her religion, it wasn't uncommon for some people to be exploring that. So it's keeping that sort of critical focus, that always questioning and unpacking and seeking to understand someone's life. Probably a really powerful way of practicing critically is in resistance. So one example I have of resisting bureaucracy. Right, I see what we're resisting now. (laughs) Yeah, first of all, all that paperwork has to be done, but it's always a low priority for me, even if I get 100 emails telling me (laughs) that this hasn't been completed. In my practice, it's a low priority because my practice with patients will always be far more important than this, even though I will get the work done. But like, for example, there's a lot of templates that we have to fill out or the patients have to fill out. And there's one called a recovery form. And the patient fills out what their recovery looks like, what their hobbies are, what their interests, what their strengths, how can they help their thinking? How can they soothe their emotions? Sometimes with the older population, they're always filling out forms. Mm. And to be honest, I think for some of them at that stage of life, this form doesn't really mean much. Yeah. It's just words on a page. And so I resist in small ways. (laughs) So I'll do a recovery, but what I'll do is I'll just go to the home and maybe take a photo of a beautiful cake they've made or take a photo of their dog or their amazing garden Mm. and then I'll just attach that to their file and not use the template. (laughs) (laughs) I think as well, like even, well, in four and a half years at uni, you're always asked, what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses? I still don't know if I could articulate that. I actually more often have other people telling me like, I picked up gardening during COVID without really realising, because little rental. Um, I was like, oh, you've got a green thumb. And I go, do I? I hadn't particularly noticed, yes. so I don't know if I could yeah. put that down in words. Yeah. It's kind of boxing us in sometimes, yeah. isn't it? Or getting stuck with what you said that one time and it can't, hobbies can't change. Yes. And... I've got another example of resistance. It's around the same thing that... Often when we meet patient for the first time, the discourse is very much around risk. So first of all, I'd like to visit you at home, but I have a home screening checklist. Are there any dogs? You know, is it safe? And so there's that discourse. And then there might be a whole lot of forms around giving your consent for us to disclose information. And so I always try and put myself in the patient's shoes. If that's your first conversation, Mm -hmm. and then it will lead to now tell me about your symptoms you know how's your mood another approach is to change things up why can't the first meeting be let's go for a walk by the water let's just spend some time in your garden getting to know you you are more 
than the agenda of the hospital. What's your life story? Tell me about your grandchildren. Tell me about your pets. What was your work history? And I'll tell you, I love it in those stories as well. And yeah. I feel like you learn, yeah, a lot. That's probably useful for you anyway. So useful. Um, but you learn a lot yeah. in that conversation and yeah. the rapport that you build and the trust yeah. and everything. It's, totally. That's yeah. the whole person. So you shared a bit then about how you meet your requirements by like going on the walk and discussing with your client how else do you appease the requirements of your job while also maintaining that individuality and creativity yep that's a a really great question and I think essentially it's a balance game Mm. and it's balancing that adhering to the protocols of the workplace at the same time bringing my own practice framework to the role Mm. So as a um, health employee, I've got no choice but to follow policies and procedures, Mm -hmm. to practice legally, ethically and professionally and essentially toe the line. I have a job to keep. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yet as social workers, we have this wonderful toolbox of theories and understandings and ways of working And so that's how I bring my individuality, my own creative practice alive. And I think it's always a choice to do that because I've noticed how easy it is to become overwhelmed by the pressures in the system and then just kind of throw your hands up and take the easy route out, Mm. which is never in the patient's best interests as soon as you start doing that. So resistant reflection, critical thinking and creativity drive through those really dry and oppressive environments. Mm -hmm. And usually when you love your job, the passion will drive you through that. In terms of maintaining my individuality, I'm aware that we always bring a sense of self to any role. Mm. I've mentioned, you know, how from a critical stance that that prompts me to reflect on my position with patients around power and privilege. But on a personal note, we as social work, we have our own history, our own influences that have shaped us to this point in time where we are in this work environment. For me, I've had my own journey with anxiety and so I guess I bring that experience to the job because mm. I can't separate myself and compartmentalise myself. No. And, you know, my experiences of anxiety have been painful and have taught me a lot about life. And just because I work in the mental health sector doesn't mean I'm free of mental health challenges and stress <laughs> and problems. <laughs> the other reflection that I thought I'd share around that is My parents are older Mm -hmm. and two years ago my dad died and here I am going to work, working with older people, Mm -hmm. meeting people who may be palliative or have grief and loss, who have illnesses and so that's difficult. Mm. It's tricky to do that. And I remember like while my dad was dying, you know, he was in a palliative care unit, I was going to work. And I was working with patients who wanted to end their life by suicide. Mm. It was just very conflicting on a personal level. I'm always mindful that 
You can be the most professional social worker you want to be, but at the end of the day, you bring your own personality, your own personal experiences to that role. And it's just learning how to set aside your own stuff in the workplace. But one thing about these personal experiences that I do feel that it opens, gives us a deeper understanding of the nature of the work we do because we work with people with messy lives and we have messy lives, right? Yeah. But it also brings a real empathy. Mm. So when someone talks to me about having anxiety and how that's affected their sleep, I have great empathy to really listen. Mm. Yeah. And I guess the other thing I would say about that is that we've got to be gentle on ourselves. Yeah. These are difficult environments and they're complex workspaces. So having some self-compassion is vital. So I think we've mentioned it in passing, um, but can we sort of dig into like the theories and practice that you use within your framework and also if you have any like advice for fellow practitioners and students? Sure. The core of my framework is the critical theory mm. and I feel that I have a, a great responsibility to explicitly uncover and challenge power mm. and then to utilise what we've touched on also is that reflexivity. So that's awareness of myself in my role and that merging of my own practice framework with my actual actions and I'm really strong on that egalitarian relationship. Are you able to break that down a little bit for us? (laughs) So the egalitarian is another word to be a co-collaborator. So imagine if you're working at uni, you are with a a lecturer who's telling you how to do the assignment or you're with a collaborator and you are working together to brainstorm ideas and collaborate on this topic together. That's a great way to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd like to work alongside to co-collaborate with my patients on what their recovery journey can look like. I'm always trying to break down power in the hospital because it's very hard to be a co-collaborator when you're working in an environment that uses a lot of power. Mm. There's a lot of power in the hospital under different acts like the Mental Health Act or the hospital or health acts. Patients can be treated involuntary. Yeah, that's a tough Really tough. Like where the rapport and the trust only get you so far. Absolutely. And I've had lots of, you know, I've made lots of mistakes and had difficult times with that. I'm just thinking of an example. I met a patient, an older man who I met him in a cafe and he was grieving a lot of loss in his life Mm. and interestingly one thing that comes up a lot for older men is a loss of a driver's license oh interesting because obviously you know in australia particularly yes brisbane regions (laughs) or more regional areas the public transport's completely inadequate so that loss of independence is huge huge stuck at home you know and maybe not really being able to get on a bus or no knowing how to navigate a bus or buy a go-card and I guess this patient experienced a lot of social isolation and I see that as a common theme in my work with older people loneliness Mm. and he had had sort of this ongoing depression and really wasn't future focused 
he didn't have much hope for the future. And so we were meeting um, for a coffee where I was just trying to build a sense of hope, draw from his strengths, Mm. and he disclosed to me that that would be the last time I see him. And I'm like, well, why would that be? Mm. You know, we're still providing care and supporting you. And he told me that he had a plan to end his life Mm. and he wouldn't disclose how that would be. Um, And so all that rapport, all that trust Mm. that he was so, you know, brave enough and trusted me enough to tell me something so deep Mm. and dark for him and frightening, once I'm given that information, I need to abide by those um, policies and procedures around um, keeping patients safe. Mm. And so he went home and then I called an ambulance and Mm. the ambulance turned up. He didn't expect that and then he was forced to come into hospital and because of his risk to himself then forced to have an admission And it was difficult because what happened is that the relationship was damaged by that. I've had lots of encounters like that. And so I guess I've only learnt to to be transparent as much as possible, to be authentic as much as possible and to communicate and educate that if you tell me some of these things, these are some of the things that may happen. Yes. The, I think they covered it within uni within the confidentiality of like these are the moments when I will have to breach that yeah. because of safety yes. concerns. Yep. Another theory that I absolutely love is structural theory. So obviously always asking what are the broader influences that are contributing to this person's mental health. I had an amazing example. So usually most of the patients we work with, they do have acute severe mental illnesses, mm. but other people present after a distressing situation or stress. Yeah. So I had a beautiful older lady married. Her and her husband had been on the DSP all their lives. Mm. They were illiterate. They had a adult son living with them who had no disability supports. They were just doing full-time care, not informed oh, wow. about NDIS, and they had been in public housing all their life. They had an opportunity to move to another town to be with family and they secured a private rental property. Mm -hmm. And then, as we've seen, as we've all witnessed recently, the rent was hiked Mm. up and she was under so much distress and so she ended up in the emergency department with panic and stress, anxiety, and thoughts about maybe not wanting to be here anymore. So that kind of presentation sits so perfectly in a structural lens. Yeah. And as social workers, then we could really go into bat for her with that sense of advocacy, mm-hmm. of agitating, of linking her to community to have some advocates support her to build up some technology literacy so they could register with real estates. None of that was easy and the solutions, we didn't find them easily because we're Mm. talking about someone with lots of disadvantage 
you know, education, poverty. But it was interesting because I advocated on her behalf to the real estate agent Mm. and I felt the real estate agent and the owner obviously had incredible power in this situation. But I used her voice, I put it in a letter, some of her words, gave a little bit of context that this woman is in crisis and is now needing some acute hospital attention. And then the email came back from the real estate agent. Sorry, Natalie, but the owner has mortgage obligations to uphold. End of story, right? Yep. So, you know, you pull your hair out and scream and think, okay, we'll just keep at it. But what was profound in that story, as I just kept trying to work, support this woman working at this issue, not focusing so much on how do we reduce anxiety through CBT. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just breathe deep. It'll all be fine. <laughs> Look, that goes hand in hand with it. Yes. Yeah. It's not the focus. One day she said to me, oh, Natalie, we've got a rental and it's cheaper. And I'm like, who helped you with that? <laughs> oh, the real estate agent found a cheaper property and she's come around and she knows we can't use the internet and she's shown us it all. She took us round to the house and had a look. Well, I can honestly say, Juliet, what I learned from that is never underestimate your efforts of advocacy. I felt all through her admission and the work we were doing that everything was kind of hopeless, Mm. falling on dead ears, and this agent who had all this power just didn't care. Mm. I couldn't believe that she was the the very one. Maybe there was something there in that email or in that situation that caused her to act. Yeah. Very quickly, very passionate about community development. Yes, for yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> no. So I, I could not do my job without community mm. and I privilege local knowledge over the expertise knowledge. Mm. I feel like that's where we find the resources, the assets for our patients and very much that bottom-up process, you know, that comes from the people, that grassroots initiative is what mm. I see as sustainable in the work that we do. So working within, you mentioned like community is obviously a big thing. Do you bring your creative approaches into community or just within like your office? Yeah. And like what do you bring in? Yeah, that's a good question. So within the office, it's creatively navigating the system. But in terms of creative work with patients, what I enjoy doing is that we um, see patients at home. We have we mm-hmm. do home visits, and I very much enjoy bringing the creative arts into their recovery. So, like one example, I visit a beautiful lady whose English is an additional language (laughs) so when we see her in the hospital we have an interpreter on the phone it's very formal very rigid but when I visited her at home the language is a barrier but what I've observed about her is that when she's in the kitchen cooking when she's sewing when she's in the garden and when she's playing music her mood improves yeah so that's a wonderful opportunity for me to draw out her creativity Mm. And with the language barrier, sometimes I will join her for a dance in the lounge room. How special. It's therapeutic. Yeah. And, for example, in her garden, we'll practice mindfulness by feeling the wind on our face, mm. smelling her herbs, listening for all the bird life. And even that is a practice of managing anxiety by being creative and connected to nature. And she can take that. 
when you're not there to remember how she felt, be like, oh, I'll just Absolutely. turn to dance today or whatever it happens Absolutely. to be. Absolutely. Another patient that I visit has a quite a long-standing severe mental illness, also has some cognitive impairment and it's not beneficial for me to talk to him about his mood. He's often down when I visit, right? Right. But he loves to play the guitar, and so I encourage him to bring out the guitar. And that's yeah. where the power happens when someone becomes in the flow, in the moment. They're feeling invigorated. They're it's taking their mind off the things that are upsetting them. So I guess it goes hand in hand, Julia. Creative practice with a critical yes. framework. Yeah, seeing them as more than their diagnoses, like they are a full person yes. with all these interests and yes. passions. Their whole personhood. And so thank you for taking the time to share all this with me today. Um, is there anything else you'd like to mention or circle back to? I'd like to finish with a quote from Paulo Freire. <laughs> I can't pronounce it. Is it Paulo? I can or spell it. Freire from yes. The Pedagogy of the Oppressed. He says, washing one's hands of the conflict between the powerful and the powerless means to side with the powerful, not to be neutral. Mm. So the moment that we lay down our critical stance doesn't mean that we are adopting a neutral place. So what I would like to pass on is that if you're feeling tired, if you're feeling burnt out, if you're feeling discouraged in your social work practice and you can't stoke that fire, then just focus on keeping the embers burning. It's really powerful. Thank you so much, Natalie, and thank you for talking to me today. It's been wonderful being here. Thanks, Juliet. Thank you for listening to this critical conversation. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, feel free to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or YouTube. And if you would like to keep up with us outside of the podcast, feel free to follow our socials on Instagram and Facebook. Just search for Critical Conversations, the number four, SW, all in one word. We look forward to you joining us next week.